Welcome back to Pure Curiosity. I'm Iris McAlpin, and today I have a conversation for you with Stephen Fleiterer. He is a recovered addict, which I know in some circles is kind of a controversial thing to say, but we'll get to that. And he's now a recovery coach and interventionist, which to me means he is a total badass. And I probably say that about a lot of my guests, but well, what can I say? I have great guests. But, you know, the reason I say that about Stephen in particular is that interventions can be some of the most intense situations in mental health. If you've ever seen that show Intervention, which granted probably shows mostly extreme cases, but you get a sense of just how volatile those situations can be. And it takes someone extremely skilled to be able to steer those situations and keep it contained. So not only is Stephen incredibly good at doing that, he also has practices in place to keep himself healthy and happy in the face of all that he sees. And that's not an easy thing to do. So I have a ton of respect for him and for the work that he does. And in this podcast, he digs into some of the biggest misconceptions about addiction and recovery. And whether you've struggled with addiction yourself or know someone who has, which I think would be pretty much everyone at this point, this conversation will be enlightening for you. I know it certainly was for me, so I hope you enjoy. first thing I wanted to ask you about is um, there are a lot of misconceptions about addiction in general and what interventions look like. What are some of the things that you feel are commonly misunderstood about addiction? Let's start there. Well, I'll start just in generally. There's a lot of stigma around this idea of what an addict or quote unquote an alcoholic Mm. looks like. And the clinical term is actually substance use disorder, which occurs on a continuum from mild to severe. And a lot of people I see like kind of rationalize their their habits or or if we call it an addiction by saying they're not as bad. They have a job. There's people, right. you know, further down the road. And the television show intervention has kind of done a disservice to show people that are in the most kind of the grips, the, the end of the road. And... A lot of people aren't aware that they qualify for a substance use disorder um, and that they're in need of some type of treatment, Um, you know, and that's kind of my journey is I got, you know, I had a mild substance use disorder, but I got treated for that early on and it changed the whole course of my life. And so I keep running in this, oh, I'm not an addict or I don't have an addiction. And the, the term addiction is so broad and how we look at it is through specifics. And um, that's the other th- question in terms of intervention. Um, intervention at its basic, um, you know, boiling it down is just helping someone to make a change. And a lot of people, when they hear the word intervention, think about everyone getting into a room in a high pressure conversation and somebody being sent off to a <laughs> treatment center against their will and that's not really what intervention's about. It's helping people who are in a stuck position. And a lot of times when I'm working with families, they're really stuck um, or individuals and helping them move forward into a healthy path. That's interesting. Okay. So I was one of the people that had a misconception about interventions. Cause I've, 
I guess I've only seen them in the context of shows like Intervention or like read about them in that sort of extreme case where it's like, okay, we're shipping you off. Mm-hmm. Uh, how often is it a less, I guess, dramatic um, process? Well, most of the time I try to, I have to re-educate people that it doesn't have to be dramatic and with skillful preparation, which I, you know, mandate for almost every case to do some preparation work, that changes everything. And I use three different types of models. The one that's, you know, the classic original, what we call the Johnson model is like what you would see on TV. That's when somebody has a problem and they wouldn't show up for a meeting. So it is the surprise, you know, and that is a little bit more of an intense, dramatic, if you will, um, type of situation. But most interventions are all done by invitation. And we have a meeting to discuss what's going on and what's breaking down for everybody and then coming up with a solution for everybody to move forward that's been affected. It's not just about one person. It's about a group of people who are being impacted by, um, you know, an eating disorder or substance use or, um, you know, some kind of problem that's going on that's kind of not been addressed and worked through. Um so the majority of interventions that I do are by invitation. They're family meetings and people are invited to come to that and every, there's no secrets. And everyone has the same, um, I give everyone an assignment to write down what's breaking down and what mm-hmm. from your perspective and what would you like to see change in the future? And then the biggest piece is having a plan that's developed so everybody, you know, can feel good walking away from the meeting. And then having a professional facilitate that changes the entire dynamic. A lot of families have tried so many times and they feel hopeless and stuck because they haven't gotten that breakthrough. But this yeah. is when having a professional come in can really shift that whole system. Hmm. Um, and a lot of the games that happen with these things kind of go away. Interesting. Yeah, one thing we've talked about before that I know you're, <clears throat> I, would, I think from what you've said, like pretty passionate about is... Um, dispelling this notion that people have to hit rock bottom before they can get better. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that's the whole purpose of an intervention is to raise the bottom for people. You know, I I love working with young people because the sooner you can get into a change process, the better the outcomes. And they've done a lot of studies that people, you know, a substance use disorder begins in adolescence for the most part. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't come on in, you know, someone's in their 40s or 50s. It's, it's been going on since, you know, adolescence. So coming in earlier can make the difference. But there is a notion that people have to hit this rock bottom. And, you know, everyone's bottom, if there is some type of epiphany that does come, is different. However, some people, and it is ends in death or overdose or a tragic accident. And so I always recommend having an intervention to prevent those things. And right. looking the other way and just waiting for something, a tragedy to happen before taking action, I think is a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing is the question, is is the status quo working for, for you? And if, if not, do you want to learn about potential possibilities of how to change that? And that often breaks through the resistance of this whole all or nothing, like I need to completely quit drinking or I need to completely do this and kind of opening the door to just trying something different, exploring different options. Yeah. Um, But in my experience, waiting for someone to have a real tragedy is not necessary. 
And that's the whole purpose of an intervention is to raise the moment of, you know, taking seriously one's life and, you know, providing them options to make a change if they decide to do that. Um, What do you think keeps people from getting to that point on their own? Because I think, you know, when something dramatic does happen, a lot of people, I'm sure certainly not all people, you know, can really see, wow, okay, my life isn't working. But how do these um, sort of like more gentle conversations get through to people, do you think? Well, I think when people get serious about that, they're not going to tolerate, you know, the status quo of what's going on Mm -hmm. and and kind of let that person in a gentle way know that um, most of the time people that call me are concerned others about someone else Mm -hmm. and they're just kind of fed up and they've hit a bottom or they're kind of at the end of their rope. Um, and they want change. So having a respectful conversation to say, this isn't working for me and I need to have change happen and then give that person the opportunity to do that makes a huge difference. And then if that person who they're concerned about says, oh, hell no, or I'm not going to do it or in whatever way they say no, it's a respectful thing to let them know that there would be potential consequences for that. Everything from less contact with the person to people are at their end rope ready to file for divorce if they're married or no longer the living situation isn't working and kind of putting those messages out there, you know, not beating someone over the head, but just giving them information that this isn't going to work long term. And if this continues, I will respond um, by making changes for myself. And that's what I see makes a huge shift. And that's how I help empower people because at the end of the day, an intervention or the work I do is all about setting up accountability, mm. is helping people be accountable. I've heard so many times, and I'm sure listeners have heard everything under the sun from promises to it'll be different this time, and you know, New Year's is around, I'm going to make a resolution, but people have a hard time following through with their actions. And my job is to help create an action plan that people can follow through. And if they don't, then that's good information for loved ones or concerned others to make a change for themselves. That makes a lot of sense. What are some of the patterns that you see? Because I know you see a lot of different people. And I guess I've gotten really curious about what are the things that are sort of bubbling up. I know there are a lot of people concerned about the way things are going just sort of generally in the world. And I imagine that has an impact on people that are prone to substance use disorders. And yeah, I guess I'm just interested to see what are some common themes that are coming up in your work. Well, a lot of people are scared. They're they're scared to have these conversations because they don't want their relationships to end or they just are scared about, you know, the future and you know, a lot of people feel really stuck and kind of don't know where to turn on how to solve and get out of these traps. Both families, loved ones, concerned others, and people that are struggling with a substance use disorder or a mental health condition, they're scared about changing and yeah. not, they don't, they don't know what they're walking into and, and, you know, need some reassurance that not sending you to jail or some type of, you know, terrible situation. It's kind of a gift to have tools to change your life. So one pattern is I see a lot of anxiety and fear mm-hmm. around, you know, and that's just human making changes is kind of scary. Yeah. Um, the other thing I see is um, a lot of procrastination is kind of like, oh, oh, we'll wait and see what happens. And, you know, 
it'll be different this time. Now I have this information and I do kind of see uh, people with a substance use disorder, they're really wanting to kind of run the show themselves and do it on their own. And I respect that, but I also haven't seen that to be effective. What I do see to be effective is turning over some of the, um, you know, solutions to professional or someone that has experience in overcoming these real challenges, that's when I start to get confident someone's going to really make a change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see that. I, I see a lot of anger, a lot of anger, um, both with, you know, having these conversations can be very difficult, and people have sometimes avoided them for decades. Yeah. And I see a lot of anger come up, um, both, uh, you know, that's going on within these, you know, loved ones that have been impacted and individuals who don't want to give up the goodies and what they're doing. And sure. they're, I've had a lot of anger directed my way. Um, I see a lot of rationalization and kind of I've gotten a lot of lectures and people kind of assuming they know what's best and they're unwilling to explore. Um, and there's the denial piece to explore, um, just really kind of getting to the bottom of these core you know, real challenges. Um, and then I just see a lot of people don't have the education. They don't know where, where to go. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of glossy websites out there, but they don't really know where to get good information. And, and, um, so I see those are kind of some of the patterns that I do see again and again. Blame is really popular. (laughs) Um, yeah. Finding someone to blame rather than finding a collaborative solution. It's more fun to blame. So I do see that a lot. Yeah, that's something I see. I mean, all you have to do is hop on Twitter for five minutes. You see a lot of that. Um, what are some ways that you deal with that in terms of helping people see the benefit of taking responsibility and owning up to things? Well, I basically create an even playing field is that every person that I work with has to, you know, take personal responsibility for their part. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people want to pay me just to kind of get rid of the problem. And I let them know that that's not how the process works, that the heavy lifting for everyone and the best thing is everyone needs to show up to the table and put work in. And that often shifts everything. If I have a family who's willing to do hard work, and then they invite the loved one they're concerned with who has a substance use disorder or friends that they're, to join that process, then there's no more power struggle of who's right and who's wrong. And so breaking through the pointing the finger of who's the worst and who's the, you know, the innocent one um, and saying, hey, everyone has a part here, that kind of shifts it. And I've had to say to some people that I'm not the right fit if um, you want to maintain a mindset that mm-hmm. your loved one is totally to blame for everything. Yeah. And so that's a that's an important thing for people to kind of sit with um, before walking down um, some of these roads. And it can be a blow to the ego. Oh, yeah. And, um, but it, it, the, the hard work that comes from doing that and, you know, having that ego deflation and kind of take some ownership um, – shifts the people's lives um, and breaks through these real challenges that people have been stuck with. Um, And absolutely. What about patterns in terms of, and I I know that there are usually quite a few factors that play into anybody that gets to the point where they're having an intervention. But um, I guess I wonder, you know, like an eating disorder recovery, for example, I see a lot of common themes of people, you know, 
serious trauma in a lot of cases. And since I work with a lot of women, there's a lot of sexual trauma. There are some consistent factors that I see that seem to be a big piece of what's fueled the problem in the first place. Do you see some consistent patterns there? Well, pretty much every case that I've worked on, everyone has, as a human being, a co-occurring thing going on. It's I do see this come up a lot in my work. Is, is, is there a drinking problem or a drug problem or is it a mental health problem? And right. There's a lot of debate. Is it, is it this or is it that? And I kind of just shut it down by saying it's both. Mm-hmm. And there's multiple things going on. And that's why treatment is so important to have everything addressed. And trauma and is a huge part. I think a lot of people who have been through traumatic experiences, sexual assault, and, you know, it's just, it's just one of a traumatic experience a human being can go through. Sure. But, um, you know, a lot of people that do end up having a substance use issue has some type of trauma or an eating disorder. And I think most people walking around have had some type of traumatic experience. And the hope is there is tools to address that. So these other, you know, unhealthy habits that arise, such as, you know, destructive eating or, um, you know, binge drinking or whatever, doesn't have to go on anymore. But I do see that trauma does um, kind of impact pretty much every person that I've worked with. And, you know, kind of having a safe place for someone to work that through, which is challenging and most people don't want to do that. But the ones that are courageous to say, I've had enough and the way I'm living isn't working anymore and I want to get to the bottom of it um, and getting to a place where co-occurring, you know, mental health issues can be addressed. Mm-hmm. That's where I see breakthroughs happen. Um, but it takes a lot of, you know, courage on a person's part to step up to the plate to do that work. What do you notice, if anything, that sort of determines whether or not somebody is willing to actually step up and do that? Because it's, it is hard and it takes, you said courage several times. And I think that's a good word for it. If you're facing your demons, it's like, it's like peering into like a dark, scary hole sometimes. And it's just... You know, I've certainly been there and it's not a fun time a lot of, you know, most of the time. But, um, you know, you know it's worth it. I know it's worth it. But plenty of people see that and they're like, oh, hell no. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think determines whether or not somebody's willing to? I think pain, mm-hmm. getting in enough pain um, is the motivator. Once the scales of the pain, so they say with, an, you know, a substance use disorder, um, that, you know, it starts with just fun. You kind of have, that's why people party is it's really fun. Yeah. A lot of benefits there. And then you kind of keep going. You have fun with some problems that show up. You got fun and problems, but it's still fun. So you keep going. And then eventually if you keep going, then you just have problems and you're just yeah. maintaining. And then, you know, this is where the pain starts to come in. And a lot of people I see that have, these issues have a real strong tolerance for pain. They've been sitting in this crap for years and they're comfortable in tolerating this pain. But once they, you know, kind of see there is a pathway out and have this kind of, you know, contradicting other side of hope that there is hope for change and there is a way out. You don't have to live this way if you don't want to anymore. It's going to require hard work. But if the pain is great enough, that's when I see people start to make a shift. 
And my job as a, you know, working as a substance abuse counselor and also as an interventionist is to help, you know, tip the scales to say like, yes, it's great to get high. Yes, it's great to drink and it feels really good. But if you keep doing this every day, where are you going to be yeah. a year from now? And then kind of plant that seed and that's kind of flipping it on its head is there's when you're in a, a substance use disorder, you're getting a lot of short-term pleasure, but yeah. you'll end up paying the price of long-term pain. And we see that with just watching the trajectory of it. And recovery is the opposite is you have to feel some pain and discomfort in the short term, but the life you can live is a upward, you know, much better over time. But that's hard for people to kind of really grasp that, you know, what we're offering is a total solution and skills so, mm -hmm. so that a person doesn't have to live that way anymore. But when you're in the grips of, you know, you know, kind of hopelessness and that nothing's worked and the only kind of band-aid that you have is your substance or the crutch of an eating disorder or whatever it is, mm -hmm. it's hard to let go. Yeah. And so that's why support is critical. And, um, you know, I'm trained to use what's called motivational interviewing is to ask different questions and kind of at, the, at its core, an intervention or all this coaching that I do is to help bolster motivation that's necessary to do things mm -hmm. that a person wouldn't want to do so that they can get to a place that's better. Because I've had to do a lot of stuff to get where I'm at today that I didn't want to do. And I just had to do it. Yeah. And I would not be here without the guidance of a lot of people to when I was in dark places to say, keep going, do yeah. this. Um, and that's why a lot of the addiction or substance use disorder, whatever label we want to call it, it occurs in isolation. And people are really like, they don't have, they've lost hope. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to, to get at is to help bring out this motivation to change it. And that's where, you know, you see in 12-step programs, the first step is admitting this is a, a problem on some level and yeah. it's not working. Your life has become unmanageable. It's not <laughs> working. Yeah. And then how are we going to change it? And once that person can see with their own eyes that it's possible, that's where I start to see people start to make a shift. I'm interested to hear, we've talked a little bit before about recovery culture and um, some of the messaging that's part of the 12-step system, where it's like, you're never fully recovered, you are always recovering, and you have to practice complete abstinence from whatever the substance is, and like that's mandatory and necessary. And I've been hearing more and more some kind of gray area, which I think makes pe some people really nervous. And then some people are like, thank God, you know, I don't want to be stuck in this rigid system forever and ever and ever. What are your thoughts on? Well, I think there's it? with any system change process. So I love that the Surgeon General put out a report last year with the opiate crisis. And it was a 400 page report. And one of the chapters is called many pathways to recovery. Mm -hmm. So there are many different types of bars. There are many different types of drugs. There are many different types of people. And not everyone wants to go to the ritzy, you know, rooftop bar. And some people like dive bars. And the, the great thing about recovery is there's many pathways. There are many roads to Rome. And I don't really care 
what pathway a person takes. And even if they go down a pathway and make a mistake, that's not a problem either. It's just they got to figure out, you know, what what is the right pathway. And I like thinking about recovery as a buffet. There's a lot of, you know, not everyone's going to like every item on the buffet. There's a lot of items, but you can't just stare at the buffet and just look at the food. you got to eat it. You have to, you know, and you have to try different things to figure out what's going to work for you. Um, but to get to this, you know, kind of debate of people kind of getting into some, semantics of, am I recovered? Am I recovering? Am I, and it just kind of comes back to, am I an addict or am I, you know, not? And I think at the end of the day, um, the question is, is what, is what I'm doing providing me results? Um, and when I'm working with someone, I look, are, what are the consequences? If you have a substance user disorder, we look at consequences, like, are you having legal problems? Are you having relationship problems? Or what are the consequences? Are you having mental health problems? And the same thing is with recovery. What are the positive benefits that are coming out of what you're doing? If you're exercising, are you, you know, getting in better shape? Are you getting results? And so a lot of people want to kind of, you know, and there's a lot of wisdom in the idea of recovering because I know for me, that I need to do things every day to improve my well-being. I can't just sit on the couch and think my way into better living. Right. I just <laughs> I have to get out of bed and do things I, that I might not necessarily want to. And that's one of the greatest things recovery teaches is the discipline to do certain things, reach out for help, you know, take actions and, you know, continue to do that. And if you kind of push the cruise control button, you might be heading for trouble. And yeah. I've learned that the hard way. Me and too. so <laughs> um, whether someone wants to say they're recovered and, you know, they, they say in the clinical term is in remission from a substance use disorder. So people go into remission where they are at high, at, they're not at high risk for a relapse where that comes after time. But there are some people that once they, you know, are early in recovery, they are at higher re- uh, risk. But it never goes away. The bar is always open. Drugs are always available. And I could go after this, you know, conversation right now, go get a bunch of, you know, pizza and food and just start binge eating on that. We always have these, you know, temptations. They're not going away. So the wisdom about the, the people that talk about recovering and I have to keep doing this thing and that kind of model is really wise because I do need to do things to stay well. I don't take my medicine, I'm not going to get better. But there is a point where you can kind of relax. You don't have to be anxious that after you've got into this remission or maintenance mode, um, you are at at less of a risk. And so you don't have to have high anxiety that, you know, you're going to go off the the wagon or something like that. Yeah. And um, the last thing I'll say is that one size doesn't fit all. You know, just because one thing works for one person um, might work completely different for another. And I can give the example of someone's addicted to heroin and they're coming off of that. They're going to need a medication to stabilize, to get in the game. Whereas if somebody's coming off of a stimulant, they are going to have a totally different, you know, road to recovery. And so everybody's um, situation is different and people need different things at different times in their life. And that comes back to the buffet is kind of try it, try eat, just keep eating, Mm -hmm. you know, don't overeat, 
Right. Because then you won't be able to continue on. But eat, you've got to keep eating to sustain the journey. And, you know, as people move through, you know, different phases, um, and I see the, this in my work with treatment, is not everyone needs to go to a residential facility. A lot of people do need to go to a detox and then residential just to get in the game and stabilize. Yeah. But not everyone necessarily needs to go down that pathway. So whether someone's recovering and say they're, and they're proud of that or they're saying they're recovered, I just get excited with either answer because mm-hmm. the people that aren't aren't in the game or having consequences, those are the people I just want to say, well, what piece of this buffet haven't you, you know, tried? And what have you tried? And let's kind of come up with a plan that works to satisfy your hunger, your thirst, and doesn't have these consequences. Yeah. So that's a long answer, but I think it covers this, um, the, these two different camps. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely a complex issue. And one thing that always interests me, like even going out in San Francisco or like when I go to house parties or things like that, there seem to be parties where there's intention around it and we're drinking kombucha and there's no alcohol present. And then there are parties where it's just alcohol. And it seems to be like... People don't cross the streams, basically. And I wonder sometimes if, you know, if you are in an abstinence sort of model of recovery, it can be pretty isolating, I would think. Um, And even for myself, I go through periods where I just, my body tells me, like, stop drinking for a while. And I'll do that. And it's, it's very difficult to go out and be at parties and do all of that when everyone is drinking around you. And so, you know, I I would love to see people sort of blend the two worlds a bit more and for there to be non-alcoholic drinks at parties more often. And and maybe that's true elsewhere. I feel like in San Francisco and LA, at least I didn't really see much of that. I do think our culture does celebrate um, this party lifestyle, and that's kind of a way for, you know, one of the biggest triggers for relapse or destructive habits is stress. And I know that substances and parties can be just a great way to blow off steam and, yeah. and a stress relief, and it's fun, and, and it's a big part of our culture. Um, there are, in terms of the abstinence versus moderation or healthy, you know, intake and there's a term called substance misuse. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, another clinical term, which is, I think, great, is there is a healthy way to engage with substances that aren't destructive. And whether someone really qualifies for a full-blown substance use disorder based on, you know, meeting criteria for that. But a lot of people, and you know, listening to this, and, you know, I've, I'm one in the camp, and it doesn't, you don't have to be you know, uh, further down, but a lot of people misuse substances and it's totally makes sense because if you've had a stressful work week or you've had a lot of stress going on, it's a kind of quick way to blow off steam and it's part of our culture. It's also a way we kind of connect socially and it's like kind of a hip thing to do in our culture is to kind of party and, and do that. And, and kind of being in this abstinence only, it kind of seems kind of dry, like, well, no pun intended, it is dry and like, you know, kind of not as fun. Right. There are some real people that if they were to have any alcohol or drugs in their system, that they are at high risk for, you know, imminent danger. And yeah. so a lot of people don't realize they are unaware that 
you know, there is this notion of an allergy for some people if they do take any substance into their body, they might they'd be back to come back to the point of no return, end up in jail, end up behind the yeah. wheel of a car, some real serious and our, our culture has not come up to understand that some people are that way. And there are other people who can, you know, drink in a way or use drugs in a way that they don't have these consequences. And so I would love to see in my lifetime a more respect for everybody as humans yeah. and inclusive mindset. Um, I go to a lot of parties and just fine and, and feel good connecting with people. But, you know, know that if, you know, I'm really kind of crossing a line and, and that it could be catastrophic. And um, part of my is just to journey is to educate people. Um, but I do think one of the things that's hard is uh, a lot of people that struggle with a, a substance use feel isolated. They feel alone. They are yearning for connection. So I'd love to see our culture shift um, with that and supporting people. Um, the last thing I'll say is a lot of people that do um, want to moderate or drink healthy or, or you know use they, they're not they're not in that camp. They they wish they obsess. They really mm -hmm. want to be that person. Yeah. Um, and the way that I help with that is giving person the opportunity to try to show that they can moderate their consumption or drink without consequences or use drugs without consequences and very quickly you can kind of tell what what camp you're you're, you're yeah. in um but the great obsession of a lot of people with a, a substance use issue um is to be like a normal a, what we call in the a 12 step you know language would be a normie someone right. that's you know able to have a glass of wine or two and not you know kind of drink the whole bottle and then, you know, end up and take at, shots take or something. Shots and then, you know, end up yeah. naked, naked running down the street. Um, so, you know, it's important for our culture to understand that, you know, someone that's in recovery or into a wellness pro, uh, approach, something is I have tremendous respect for anyone that's trying to improve themselves as a human being. And that's something to celebrate rather than to shame yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, and you know, I, my experience with this is somewhat limited when it comes to substances, but you know, even times when I do stop drinking, it's really interesting to notice people's responses. And a lot of times it's like, why are you doing that? They're like, why don't you just have a glass of wine or like join us? You know, it's the peer pressure thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there is a ton of respect for people honoring their bodies, honoring their values, whatever that looks like, if it's not part of the status quo. And um, uh, there was something I was going to ask you about. Oh, yeah. In eating disorder recovery, there's, I guess, a technique of intuitive eating and really learning to listen to your body and listen to your needs. Is there, an, as a way of dealing more healthfully with food and especially for people who have been caught on the like diet track and yo-yo dieting and all of that it's a really helpful tool and I'm wondering if there's anything in the realm of alcohol recovery that touches on that well there is so first like it's just the mindfulness and meditation and yoga has become a big part in our culture in, in the U.S. Um, and that's kind of 
becoming more and more popular, but it's definitely gotten into addiction treatment where people can use mindfulness mm -hmm. as a way. There's a technique called surfing the urge. So for people that are trying to be completely abstinent, they're going to have temptations to go. And, you know, they might be at a party and everyone's drinking or they might see, you know, something like a, a cold beer on a hot day and they have that urge to go and, and drink it. And mm -hmm. mindfulness helps to notice that and just ride the wave and then it yeah. dissipates. Now, if you're asking in terms of uh, someone that has a goal to kind of moderate their intake. Yeah. So there are a lot of people that, like I said um, a few minutes ago, that really they just really want to be able to drink and uh, they want that middle road they don't want to completely stop but they don't want to be drinking at the high levels they are and like hurting their body and sure. they want to fit in with the culture so they don't want to completely give it up and like i said as some people it's just not possible mm -hmm. and i respect people trying those experiments to you know letting them know there are real risks you know yeah. but and some people don't they have you know catastrophic consequences but kind of getting that information is important to see am i a person that can actually you know drink like a gentleman or <laughs> you know like a lady or not but for the ones that are able to do that they their goal is to moderate and there's they they know what the healthy limits are i educate them about that mm -hmm. and then we have an accountability plan and I see. So there are certain technology devices now, like a company called Soberlink is a uh, alcohol monitoring company, and they have this for a couple of devices for plugging into the iPhone. Um, you know, you can put in a breathalyzer to oh, cool. monitor your blood alcohol content. And what Soberlink does is you blow into this device, and it lets you know if you've gone above the legal limit and if it, you do then it um, sends a text message to another person that you've oh, kind of gone cool. out so it kind of gives the person the opportunity to demonstrate can i really go to a party and drink like a gentleman and yeah. not abuse alcohol or misuse alcohol or not and this is where that accountability piece comes in and so many people kind of really mean it when they're in the office say okay i'll be different this week but once you put this system in, we'll get the results. Yeah. And so that's something I wish there was more, um, just with all kinds of things, is we need accountability to make changes. And I do work with some clients that they have a moderation goal, and they stick to it, and they're successful. And my, and I, my hat's off to them. I'm so happy about that, and their lives are better. And then I have clients that really want to do that, and they just can't follow through. Yeah. And... So that's kind of um, how I approach those two things. Interesting. Okay. This is shifting gears a little bit, but you mentioned the 400-page report that came out on opiate addiction. And because that is such a huge problem, what are some of the current thoughts about how we start to manage this issue? Well, a lot of physicians, there's a uh, addiction medicine specialist at Stanford, Anna Lemke, wrote the, uh, the book Drug Dealer MD that goes mm -hmm. into this crisis we have. And a lot of physicians got duped by these prescription medicine um, companies and they're overprescribing and that's what began the, the crisis. And people don't realize the addiction potential of these substances and how hard they are to get off of. Um, so... 
educating people is the first of understanding what, you know, just the real risks and, and how to address that. When someone is addicted to an opiate, it's important they get referred to an addiction medicine specialist. I refer people to addiction medicine, um, psychiatrists and physicians to assess them. And then it's important that they get the appropriate medication for, you know, managing with getting off the withdrawal and getting into recovery and detoxing from these substances. And there are starting to be over-the-counter prescription for overdose. If someone was to overdose to prevent that uh, Narcan um, medication that you can get. So if someone wasn't overdose, they can get that and save their life. But what's really important um, for, for the crisis is getting people matched to the appropriate care providers. And that's part of my job. And also making sure that they have, like, again, accountability. And what a term of uh, a role called a case manager, where drug and alcohol monitoring is happening to make sure people are using these prescriptions as prescribed, making sure that they're getting the appropriate treatment and medication management to change that. And the problem is, there's so many people that need these services, they just don't know how to get plugged in to the right places. Where can people start to look for that? Do you know? So there is um, what I would suggest is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Mm-hmm. There, That's the uh-huh. website I would go to where a, a clinical assessment can be done. And there's also different, um, you know, they can go on to, to my website, sfintervention.com, and read under the education section of the different levels of care. And the first step on the journey for a lot of people is getting assessment and getting referred to detox. And so there's different resources there. And then they can also go on my website um, and they can look up on Google as well as um, our government agency, SAMHSA, is um, a way that people can, you know, find an addiction medicine specialist or treatment provider to get plugged into. Um, and so it's important that getting ed- educated and empowered and, you know, plugged into professionals um, is really important, um, especially that are trained in addiction medicine if someone feels they're at risk. What do you think? I mean, I don't want to get into, like, who's to blame, but um, on some level, where do you think the breakdown happened that this is it the doctors not adequately explaining the risks? Is it the pharmaceutical companies just like pushing these pills down people's throats? Where do you think the breakdown happened? I think um, it's a combination of uh, all of the things you just said. Okay. And I think the problem got out of hand um, before it was too late. And, mm-hmm. and just that um, things were being overprescribed. And it's the same thing with a lot of the, we don't know with, you know, cannabis now that it's legal, what the long-term consequences, and I'm agnostic in terms of all substances have risks and benefits, and, you know, there are ones that are more high-risk, crack cocaine, heroin, you know, methamphetamine, but we don't know the long-term repercussions of, you know, and I have seen, just to touch into cannabis for a second, people have psychotic breaks on one hand yeah. and they completely erode people's lives. And I've also seen for cancer patients and others that med- mer- medical marijuana can be a helpful um, part of their, you know, prescription and, and that. So there's an argument for both sides. But what's important to with the opiate crisis is, you know, these were medications prescribed by doctors and yeah. just and it got out of hand because the addiction potential of these substances are easily 
you know, abused. And um, we didn't know the ramifications of where this would go, you know, years ago and how we're here now. But what's important, and this is again where the addiction treatment industry is changing to really, you know, in a scientific way, address, you know, substance use disorders. And one of the most important pieces is like, I come back many times in this discussion is to figure out on the buffet, the menu of options, what each person really needs. So it's individualized. And there are a lot of prescriptions for, you know, withdrawal um, that are necessary and they need to be prescribed by a licensed, you know, physician that trained in addiction medicine to, to get out of these, these real, real tough traps. But that's not it, not medication management and just saying no, as our president said, just say no, that is Mm -hmm. not enough Um, for someone that's in the grips of an addiction. They need a lot more resources and options um, to pull themselves out of it and a lot of support. And that's my job is to try to set up those plans. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the trust that people have in their physicians has maybe gone down a bit because of this. I think it used to be your doctor prescribed you something, you assume it's safe and you take it and that's the end of the story. And like I, for example, I was totally addicted to Adderall for a really long time and I didn't think it was a problem because I had a prescription. And then as soon as I stopped taking it, I was like, whoa, this is a, you know, this, it was hard to stop taking it. And, you know, I, I was lucky. I've seen people really go down a dark path with that one. Um, my path off of it wasn't that hard, but it it was a very real, like, physical addiction that I had to it. And because I had a prescription, I was like, oh, well, you know, it's it's fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, like, they're just throwing around, it's basically legal speed. And I doubt it's very good for you long term. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, people thinking more critically about what they're being prescribed and asking those questions is going to be really important. Exactly. So alcohol, you know, talking, you're talking about legal prescriptions. So, you know, Adderall and, you know, um, you know, nicotine and alcohol, these are all, and now uh, in the state of California, Colorado, you know, cannabis. And it's been, it's so easy for our brains to go, oh, it's legal. That was mm-hmm. one of my stories. Oh, it's legal. I'm 21. I'm good. Yeah. And, you know, oh, I got a prescription for my doctor. I'm off the hook. And I'm always, you know, now that when these, this type of thinking, you know, I'm hearing it, I get nervous because alcohol is one of the most deadly substances. Yeah, I'm um, And it's because of, you know, our culture and the history of why it was legal and prohibition didn't work. And, you know, um, there's many people that can consume it with no consequences. But the scary thing with alcohol um, that people, a lot of people don't know is once you get to a point where you are physically dependent on it, if you don't get appropriate withdrawal management or, um, you know, the appropriate care, you can die of a seizure. Yeah, and a lot like of people the DTs, are right? in the DTs and a lot of people, and this is also a drug, alcohol is a drug that you can overdose on. And we hear this all the time of people drinking too much and their body shuts down or they choke on their own vomit. And so that's something that's readily available in restaurants and grocery stores and liquor. Yeah. It's just, it's readily available. Um, and the same goes with these prescription medicine, medications, Adderall, you know, you know, narcotics that you can get. Um, 
there's doesn't mean you're you're scotch free just because you got it um yeah and so thinking critically about what we put into our bodies um and you know thinking for the long term of what are the long term effects of these habits is a critical you know i think for everyone to do yeah it's it's interesting how our culture is like drugs are so bad but alcohol is a drug caffeine is a drug people are taking drugs all the time mm-hmm. and I don't know how much you're sort of keeping up on this, but, you know, certain drugs that have been demonized for long periods of time, like MDMA or psilocybin, mushrooms, are now being used as potential treatments for addiction. Do you hear people talking about that a lot? I do. I remember there was articles in the New York Times, another article that were coming out about Ibogaine, ayahuasca, and different, you know, hallucinogens to help treat heroin addiction and there's also a treatment center down in LA that uses uh, marijuana to treat heroin addiction and so there's a lot of different you know pathways as I said to for people to find um, you know healing and recovery and there's the harm reduction model so if someone's been taking heroin and they could die of an overdose and they step down to finding cannabis and that is more manageable that's a harm reduction and so yeah. that's saved a life um i always advocate for you know asking people what does well-being mean to you what does it look to mm-hmm. like to you and what is your goals um but in terms of you know using you know hallucinogens and uh you know mdma and other things to treat uh various mental health or um, addiction disorders or substance use disorders I um, kind of go back to many paths to recovery and yeah. respect um, medical professionals. It, I I don't I get wary if someone is doing their own treatment plan if right. it's done and facilitated. Yeah. If if it's facilitated by a you know a team of professionals, then my confidence you know is a you know as I said you know they they talk about this in the twelve step programs. Go out and try an experiment to you know drink like a gentleman. So if something isn't working and you're taking an experiment to go down a substance you know induced uh, you know treatment, if it's being facilitated by a professional, or right. um, then. I have more I'll, to endorse that. If it's someone that's kind Just of like going doing to a it, rave or something, it, and, and, <laughs> oh, the rave is my treatment plan, and the rave plus you know I'm going to do my own home te- detox. That's again where I I wouldn't want to you know endorse those type of totally. you know home remedies. Um, however, I kind of come back to keeping an open mind to what what works, and you know if it's back to the golden principle of it's not harming myself or harming others, then I can't you know kind of kind of get in there and and say you know stop don't do that I, sure. I don't practice that way when i come in to do interventions it's clear that harm is being done on mm-hmm. multiple levels and my yeah. goal is to reduce the harm that's being done so that these like i said uh and and we talked about with the prescription medicines these treatments are controversial there's they're not necessarily just like how because alcohol is legal doesn't mean that just because these treatments are in place doesn't mean that they're going to work for everybody they're controversial and so what at the end of the day is you just said it a few minutes ago is critical thinking Mm -hmm. important to have critical thinking and have getting professional opinions about treatment planning yeah that makes um, a lot of sense so i that's one common theme i do see uh is 
everyone wants to run their own treatment plan. And I think it is important for people to have some choice in individualizing what's going to work for them. But they have a saying is my best thinking and my actions got me to a place of desperation on my knees. You know, my ways of dealing with life kind of got me into a real black hole. So if I was the one managing my treatment plan, I might be in real trouble. So (laughs) it's important to have some guidance from people that have, you know, um, been there and also have training and know kind of how to navigate these, these different pathways. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing I'm curious about, and this, you know, if this isn't in your wheelhouse, feel free to say that, but, you know, I just imagine for parents, because I know I definitely have some parents who listen to this who have, you know, teens and, and younger, what do you think is a good way to approach some of these complex topics with young people because obviously kids start drinking. I feel like people are drinking and smoking weed and whatever at younger and younger ages. And so how do we talk to young people about this in a way that isn't just like, just say no, because obviously that doesn't work very well, um, but educates them, keeps them safe. Um, So that's a great question that comes up a lot is um, how things are presented makes the difference. So when I was growing up, they had the D.A.R.E. program and it was kind of like, don't do all these bad things. And there was a Mm -hmm. cop in there saying that. And it made me want to do them because it was (laughs) like forbidden. It's like, don't press the red button. It made me want to press the red button. So if you take an approach of kind of lecturing and saying, no, don't do this, it's off limits, that could work against just the human impulse of don't push the red button, I want to push the red button. The other side of the coin is being too laissez-faire and just like, oh, boys will be boys or kids do what they do, this is a phase, blah, blah, blah. So there's a middle ground approach of having education directly presented and then what I call the plant the seed operation I don't think that I'm powerful enough to say something or someone listens to this lecture, this podcast, and then, you know, they're completely scotch-free from all substances for the rest of their life. Right. Like, I, But I do think that what I say and how, how things are said and coaching, I do do some coaching with family members on how they can present to their kids in an effective way to increase the likelihood that if there is a problem, they'd reach out for help. Yeah. And also to prevent um, going down a destructive path, which is the goal. So, um, again, it touches on that if there is a problem that does start to um, manifest, it's important to reach out to a professional to address that as soon as possible. Um, and then, as I said about consequences, it doesn't need to be like a beating over the head lecture and saying you're in trouble go to your room but letting someone know that if they are you know drinking and driving or they are you know abusing a substance that there will be a response to that from the family to address it and it can range and having these conversations ahead of time and planting these seeds can make all the difference that's what intervention is all about is we have a very important serious conversation to kind of give this education about the real risks of substance use. And then if something presented that there's options for help and that if there are real issues like adolescents have a party, 
um, you know, well, while their, their parents are out, the parents can be held liable for that. So they yeah, need to know absolutely. that there would be consequences if adolescents are taking these actions. It's important to respond appropriately, appropriately to that. So the, the short answer is there's no magic bullet solution, mm-hmm. but there are ways to respond that are more skillful than others. And, you know, making it clear that there is help available and, um, that it's not something to be ashamed of, but also not encouraging, you know, misusing substances, um, but also not doing what the cops and the D.A.R.E. program did is say, no, just say no, just say no, I'm bad, because that would make it so someone's more likely to experiment and hide those behaviors. Well, it's interesting. I mean, in college, I noticed the kids who were really, really sheltered were the ones who were going crazy and the ones who were having, like, the ambulance called because they were you know, blackout drunk and people were worried. Um, whereas, you know, in my family, alcohol was sort of destigmatized. Like my parents weren't like giving us drinks, but you know, here's a sip of my beer or try this wine or whatever. And it made it so that I didn't go completely nuts when I got to college. I wasn't, I didn't need to do that. But, um, it made me, as I was thinking about that, it made me think there are those people that you mentioned before that, they can't do moderation. And so if you have, so I guess, again, no, no one size fits all. Like if, if I had been one of those people and my parents gave me a sip of their wine, it could have gone south, I guess. And that's where I was one of those kids that was kind of sheltered growing up in Palo Alto and I had a great family and, you know, I was called a choir boy and, you know, <laughs> I had gotten, kind of went to the other extreme of really partying and I got in trouble when I was in college and drank too much in the dorm room and got in trouble. And when I went to the resident, um, you know, counselor to talk about it, I kind of turned it around saying, you don't want me drinking on the streets of Baltimore, which is where mm-hmm. I went to college. And I got off. And what I wish, and this is where for college campuses, universities, and for parents is the appropriate response would have been you had got excited or in trouble for drinking, binge drinking on campus, and we are going to put you on a monitoring protocol, a case management program. And so that I was going to be monitored by a professional to regulate what I was doing. And that's what I think is the most important thing is there's no need for excessive punishment and there's no need to just completely look the other way. It comes back to what I've said many times is accountability. If there is a real situation, if someone's being admitted to the hospital for drinking way too much or has an accident, it's important that they have an accountability to make a shift and get the right appropriate help. And the good news is that I also say is that, you know, with treatment, there's different various levels of care. Not everyone, you know, needs to be in a residential program. Some people really do as the first stop, but a lot of people start with just an assessment with a mm-hmm. professional or getting some coaching or, you know, getting that basic education or like I mentioned this case management and monitoring to be held to uh, some accountability for something that's very risky. Yeah. And that's what's missing in a lot of situations is people are kind of stuck of what to do. And so that's kind of what I help a lot of people with is setting up these accountability plans. Yeah. Um, What do you think colleges could be doing, should be doing um, to address this crazy binge drinking phenomenon that we see? And it was definitely present when I was in college. I feel like maybe it's gotten worse. Um, Uh Uh-huh. 
huge problem. I think there's a lack of appropriate preventative programs or getting, you know, the, the word out in, in an effective way. And then there's just a complete lack of a way of addressing and responding appropriately and getting people. This is, if, if someone really has a substance use disorder, it's a medical condition that can be treated. And that's being missed when mm -hmm. there are crisis situations if someone overdosing or being taken to the hospital or all these things is, I don't want uh, young people to kind of laugh it off as they're, yeah. they're I want people to be educated on how to respond to that. If one of their friends is in a bad position, how to appropriately respond. Many people are afraid to call the police or the, to, to appropriately respond and people's lives are at stake. Yeah. And college, uh, colleges are kind of in a, in a tough place because they don't want the spotlight on them if they have an right. incident on their campus. So it's important that there are pathways that are established for, you know, and this is one exciting thing within the recovery is there are co colleges that are sober colleges that are, are starting, universities oh, wow. that have, for people, you know, that cannot, you know, regulate their substance intake, they can go to a community where they're getting the support and can succeed in their goals of getting an education and not get many people I know, you know, fail out of school because of substance use. And we need to do a better job at providing pathways for people to become successful and kind of respond appropriately when incidents are happening. That's fascinating. I've not heard about that. So are they sort of embedded in some kind of treatment program or they're just like... Are there meetings happening and stuff inside of these? Oh, yeah, it's schools, a whole or? program for for recovery plus uh, university education. Huh. There's programs in Texas. I think at the University of Texas they have a program, and there's a lot of different That's you know things cool. that are popping up. Um, you know, for um, individuals that do struggle with it, it's a hard time. I got into recovery when I was a junior in college, and it's a hard time to get into recovery when you don't have a lot of your peers that are backing you up. Right, and so. What we need to see shifting is a, a, a cultural change of understanding the very real consequences. And it's getting worse, as you said, that it is getting worse on college campuses. It is getting worse. This opiate epidemic is, you know, it's the war on drugs has failed. And America is one of the worst countries that is struggling with drug epidemic and alcohol epidemic. And um, a cultural shift is needed and, um, you know, having adequate pathways for young people to kind of get the help they need from the beginning is yeah. what I would love to see change because I'm seeing more and more people that it doesn't have to be, you know, in your 30s when you address a substance use issue. It doesn't have to be, you know, in your late 20s. It can be as early on as in your adolescence and your whole life is different once you get the skills to, you know, not have to rely on destructive coping mechanisms. Yeah. Um, so that's my mission. Yeah, I, um, I really think, like, I hope this is the silver lining of all of this, that I think people used to be able to say, oh, this is not my problem, or, oh, I, nobody I know deals with that. And <laughs> I just don't. I don't think that could possibly be true for anyone anymore. I mean, maybe if you're living in a cloister or you're like Amish or something, I don't, I don't know enough about that to, to say that, but, um, you know, I would say almost everybody has somebody who's had some kind of addiction. And so my, my hope is that 
people will start to have a little more compassion and it won't just be like, oh, those people who have an addiction. It's like, this is all of us. This is a symptom of something bigger. This is part of our culture now. Um, we need to address this. And I don't know. Are you seeing oh, people shifting in that way? I just know that a statistic that I saw is one in three families in the U.S. has someone in their family that's impacted by addiction. Yeah. One in, That seems almost conservative. Yeah. I think one in ten people every walking around is struggling with a substance use disorder. There's wow. a statistic of 22 million people right now are falling through the cracks and not being treated for substance use. So that, and that's a, like a higher, you know, severe substance use disorder. We're not even including the people that are mild and just starting out, yeah. but it is a huge, you know, issue. It's impacting many people. Um, and, um, it does bother me that it, people kind of look the other way and, yeah. um, it's a, it's a medical condition that's, you know, been recognized as a medical condition and there is treatment that's available. Um, but Oh, we can do a lot better than we are doing to be supportive and compassionate and um, understand more. And we fail to educate around this issue effectively. Right. And what what are the warning signs? What to look for? How to address it? And more importantly, how do we support people that have this condition? Yeah. Well, so if there's somebody listening who like maybe has a friend or um, family member, colleague who they are concerned about and they want to sort of educate themselves on how to be a more compassionate listener, a more effective advocate for that person, where would you send them? Um, so, you know, there's, it, it depends. So I start with just education. So if they're a concerned other, you know, calling to get information there, there's a lot of information on my website. I'll promote myself for sfintervention.com. Yeah. I spend a lot of time on my website to provide education. So there's an education page to learn about this condition. Cool, yeah. And then there is a resource page that has resources, articles, treatment centers, different things that are there for just as a starting point. Um, I do, you know, want to say that a lot of, you know, doctors don't have training in, in this. They, if you want to learn specifically, I would say looking up addiction medicine doctors, a lot of um, psychologists um, didn't get fully trained in how to address substance use um, issues. And so if your loved one is resistant, contacting an interventionist um, or a treatment center to get more information, it could be the first step. Um, attending support groups um, for your own um, support while dealing with a loved one. Um, and um, yeah, and then reaching out for help um, to, you know, get coaching or, or counseling or, or therapy to navigate this. There's no shame in that. It's actually what shifts a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Um, you mentioned treatment centers and I know I've told you stories of some sort of nefarious things that have happened with um, with people just getting misdiagnosed or people getting like almost a sales pitch to come in when it was really not appropriate for people to be an inpatient and stuff like that. Um, do you have on your resources page are there a list of treatment centers that you think are excellent? Yeah, the the challenge with treatment centers is there are a lot of centers that are not you know appropriate fits for people and then there's a lot of 
there's a, it's kind of an issue as the, the individual that's struggling with an issue, a substance use issue or, or condition needs to be willing to engage with a treatment program. Right. So even if they're placing the best and they're not willing to engage, it's not going to necessarily work. Um, and then we also have treatment centers that aren't, you know, equipped to really handle or deal with certain issues. And so matching people to the best of what I do to the best of my ability to match people to the right places is, is a service that I provide. Um, but there is, you know, real challenges within the industry to find, you know, the solutions that people are hungry for and needing. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard, as I say, you know, doing research is what is the most important part and asking the right questions and, you know, and also understanding that treatment rehab is not a cure-all. Yeah. It is not, it is the first step on a journey, an intervention before that for people that aren't willing to go, which is what I, you know, see in the trenches is the first step on the journey, but it's only to open the door for a new life. And so it's really, I even get sucked into it myself of just wanting the treatment center to fix someone completely. And then right. And that just is a fallacy. It's, it's, it's not to say that this isn't, this is a hopeless situation for anybody, but treatment isn't designed to kind of solve and fix and then everything's good. It's designed to give someone a foundation to then continue on their, their healthy lifestyle for the rest of their life. Mm. Um, is that why you think the, the, do you use recidivism rate? Mm-hmm. Would, um, and, and rehab facilities is so bad, um, or so high, I guess I should say, um, is that because people kind of go in expecting to be fixed? Well, that's one of the things. And then it comes down to not following through. Right. And again, taking action, like we said um, at a point in this, this conversation, is resting on your laurels or just kind of um, kind of hoping that you can just kind of work hard and then just cruise control is not, you know, that's not the, the solution. And so a lot of people need really good support when they come out of treatment. And that's something that really is um, something we're failing in the industry to provide. As I, I really educate people from the beginning that this is not just a 30-day turnaround. It's, you know, right. that, that could be the first stop. But what happens after someone comes out of treatment makes the, the difference. The continuing care or aftercare is, is everything. And at a point, you know... Treatment can get you started, but there is a decision a person has to make is, am I going to do the heavy lifting to change my life? Yeah. And um, that's kind of my job is after people come out is to try to support them in the best way I know how and give them, you know, I needed training wheels. We all do. What's changing? I needed training wheels for a year to make it to that year milestone. And so... There's no problem with that. It's actually kind of what I respect the most is when people um, say, I do need some help with making this. If I would have succeeded, I wouldn't have, you know, be sitting here in this office or I wouldn't be, in, we wouldn't be having an intervention if you would have been able to do it on your own. So when someone says, I, I'm willing to do what Steven suggests, I get encouraged. And I, I, I don't know, I'm not a psychic. I say this all the time. I don't know what's going to work perfectly for every person, but I do know if someone keeps saying they're going to do it their way and expect that it's going to make the difference this time, that's when I, anyone that's on this spot listening now is, you've probably heard it a bunch of times, oh, it'll be different this time. Um, but 
what needs to happen is someone to really be, you know, getting guidance from um, somebody other than themselves that's struggling with a real challenging issue such as a substance use disorder or an eating disorder or a mental health disorder. Yeah. So um, just one last question for you, just to kind of end on a high note, I guess. (laughs) What are some things that you're really hopeful about in terms of, like new treatments you're seeing that are coming through or, you know, new sort of ways of looking at things that people are starting to, to discuss, like what makes you excited? I'm excited that there's a lot of, uh, available types of treatment pathways and recovery is not just one thing. There's many tools available and a lot of people don't know that. I was given the opportunity to train with Dr. David Burns at Stanford, and um, he's developed over 50 different cognitive behavioral therapy methods that I have in my toolkit to offer people. So when people kind of get stuck on the journey and they've been kind of doing this one thing over and over again, and it's kind of they're tired and they want something new, um, it's nice to have 50 different tools to address a human being with the various issues that come up. Um, and, and I'm excited that there are, you know, many things a person can be doing to change their life and it's not just a one thing. Um, and so that's, and a lot of people don't know that when people think addiction recovery, they think Alcoholics Anonymous and that's it. And that is a great organization and it, it, it helps so many people and it's something that has so many positives. It's not the be end end all though, and, and it's not professional treatment, and it's not you know something that just that works for everybody, sure. and or a support group is not sufficient for every person, and so it's nice to have tools, yeah, and lots of different options to provide someone, and um, that's where I get excited yeah. and kind of promoting that. It's not just you kind of get on your knees and pray and hope it works out. There's, there's a lot of other things in addition to, um, you know, that, um, available. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. And you guys go to Steven's website, sfintervention.com, right? Uh huh. Yeah. And, uh, check out resources there if you want more. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to learn more about Steven, go ahead and just head over to sfintervention.com because he has a ton of resources on there as well as more information about his services. So to find out about me, you can head over to Instagram. My handle is at Iris McAlpin and there you can find links to all of my stuff in my profile. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. I know it's a little bit of a tricky process. They don't make it easy to do, but it really does help out a lot. And in two weeks, I will be back with a conversation with professional wrestler, Sean Ricker. And that seems kind of random for me, but he's this really funny, somewhat off-color, great, genuine guy. And we get into body image and gender politics. He offers some very different viewpoints than you're probably used to hearing, which is exactly why I wanted to bring him on. He actually started arguing with me a little bit on a post that I made and 
I totally agreed with him, but it was, it was an interesting dialogue and it made me realize this guy was really passionate about some things I wouldn't have necessarily expected. And I'm just going to say now there's nothing PC about our conversation. There were parts where I was sort of squirming a little bit or maybe squirming a lot (laughs) about what was being said, but I just, we're at this time where I feel like there's a lot of censorship happening and I think it's very important to be able to have unfiltered conversations and so that's what we're going to bring so until then stay curious